My name is Caroline Elliott. I'm manager of adult programs here at the Hirshhorn. Uh, we're very happy to have, us, have with us today Peter Botker, who is a sculptor and painter, as well as adjunct faculty at the Corcoran College of Art and Design, to discuss Auguste Rodin's The Walking Man. Peter was born in Denmark and received his MFA in sculpture from the Royal Danish Academy of Fine Arts in Copenhagen. As a former head of the School of Restoration at that academy, Peter has overseen the reconstruction of sculptures, monuments, and architectural ornaments that are part of Danish cultural heritage. In addition to working as adjunct faculty for the Corcoran, Peter is a sculptor and painter who has exhibited in Europe and in the US. To see some of his artwork, please visit his website at Peter Botker.com. Please help me to welcome Peter Botker. Well, first of all, thank you, Caroline and Hirschhorn, for inviting me, and thank all of you for coming today. The painter Paul Klee once said, art does not reproduce what we see, but rather it makes us see. I think this is true for all great art, uh, that it shows us something that we are lacking within ourselves, maybe. So what is it that Rodin, he uh, makes us see in this statue? What is it that has influenced the way we think about sculpture today? If we take a look at the sign next to the statue, it tells us that we are looking at the walking man, that uh, it's cast in bronze, and that it's made in 1900, enlarged in 1962. That is, of course, useful information, but it doesn't really answer the question. So what better place to start than asking the statue itself? Or even better, let's observe the statue from the inside. So allow me to suggest that we do a little experiment. I'm sure you all remember when you were children, children playing cowboys and Indians, or maybe husbands and wives. Um, so imagine for a moment that we are the walking man. So I would ask you to please uh, strike the pose of the statue. So that means feet far uh, away from each other. Toes slightly inward and torso tilted somewhat forward. Now, of course, we can't take off our heads and we can't take off our arms but we can close our eyes and we can close our ears with our hands so now let's go to this place inside the walking man and observe shall we and we I suggest we do it for 10 seconds all right So um, <clears throat> this might not go well as a uh, scientific experiment, but I think it might give us a better uh, idea of this something that I was talking about. What kind of place was it? What did we see? What did we hear? What kind of qualities did it have? First of all, I think we can agree that it was a silent place, a dark place, sorry. I don't mean dark in the sense of good versus evil, but simply a place without light. 
Secondly, we notice that it is a silent place. There are no words. If we remain in this place, we might become increasingly aware of our, the rhythm of our heartbeat and breath. Maybe we feel expansion of our chest as we inhale and exhale. Notice the weight of our body mass transfers through our legs and down into the ground. What I'm trying to say is that we become increasingly aware of the world of elements, the world of physics, the world of biology. The poet Carl Sandburg described it like this, and I quote, Powers of bone and cord raise the belly and lungs out of ooze and over the loam where eyes look and ears hear. And arms have a chance to hammer and shoot and run motors. Okay, now let's uh, observe the statue from the outside with the help of a writer and a poet who also happened to become Rilke's, uh, sorry, to become Rodin's secretary. Let's go back to the year 1902, September the 1st. Rainer Maria Rilke was 26 years old when he uh, first uh, stepped into Rodin's studio in Meudon right outside Paris to write a monograph on the back then year back then 62 years old sculptor at the peak of his career the intuitive poet is one of the first to realize and put into words the uh, vision of this statue and I quote Rilke the walking man as finally exhibited is the antithesis of 19th century statue for it lacks the old values of identity. Assertive ego, moral message rhetorically communicated, completeness of parts and finish, and stability. More than any other of Rodin's works, this sculpture overwhelms the viewer by the power of movement. No sculpture before Rodin had made such a basic, simple event as walking, the exclusive focus uh, of his art and raised it to the level of high drama." End of quote. Now if we take a look not far from here in front of the Capitol Hill, we find the famous statue of Ulysses S. Grant. The, uh, well technically it's a 20th century statue as it were begun in 1902, but in form and content it belongs uh, to a 19th century tradition. So allow me to illustrate. In the sculpture, the Civil War general credited with saving the Union sits astride a horse on top of a 40-foot pedestal. Below him, two horizontal pieces show soldiers in battlefield conditions with charging horses, careening cannons and screaming men. The monument is symmetrical. The pedestal is geometric and square. The figures are complete in every way. Furthermore, it's placed at one of the most important accesses in the city, connecting the Capitol Hill with the Lincoln Memorial through the uh, Washington Monument. Thus, having all the academic conventions of the 19th century, this monument is part of a grand design that carries a moral message. Now, if we compare the two statues, the walking man is placed on a small platform. It has rounded corners, it's uneven 
and the form follows the statue, just barely leaving space around the feet. If you notice, there's no, not much space here around it. The little platform is elongated and placed diagonally in relation to the movement of the figure. But most important, the statue is placed in eye level, in the same space as you and I. Rodin wanted people to elbow his work and for the same reason he chose a low and natural looking platform. We know that was the case with the Burgos of Calais that we have right next to us. Despite the fact that Rodin wanted the people of Calais to bump into it, it was decided by the city hall to place it on a much higher pedestal. Eye level was not heroic enough. It was not until the, after the death of the artist that the burghers were placed on a much lower platform, similar to the one we uh, see here in the Hirschhorn Sculpture Garden. Okay, now uh, let's continue. Left foot is placed uh, back, right front in front, and both uh, uh, feet are placed firmly on the ground. Rodin was well aware that if you looked at a man walking in real life, he would have one foot about to leave the ground or in the air. I should know Rodin, that Rodin uh, subscribed to Moybridge's book Animal Locomotion with the famous gait analysis of his. But Rodin said that if you did so in a statue, it would look like a static pose of movement, like an illustration. Now, in order to express the movement, the, sculpt the sculpture had to show the successive unfolding of a movement, meaning the first and the last action. He called it the metamorphosis of the first step, which is this one. The feet are placed far apart from each other in an inward stride. If you recall our experiment, this does not strike uh, one as a natural way to walk. This uh, is not the feet of a self-balanced classical figure where they are both turned out. These feet are plowing the soil, so to speak. As for his legs, the left one is, fa uh, is about four inches longer than the right leg. That's quite a bit if you think of your own legs. But it makes for the expressive forward leaping thrust of the walking man. Rodin knew what Michelangelo and Bernini before him, that in order to make something look natural, you had to make it unnatural. Now, uh, Rodin, of course, was not the first artist in the history uh, to, uh, who was interested in movement. Let me mention a few examples. If we go back to the old Egypt, uh, the Sheikh El Belit was a walking statue, one foot in front of the other, both feet flat on the ground. Experts have believed that he was an effigy, signifying that the deceased would be able to walk in the afterlife. Osiris, the god of death on the other side, had, feet, had her feet and legs placed together. The Greek Koros is another example of a statue with one foot placed in front of the other. And similar is believed to be a sign of uh, the artist to create life likeness. The major difference between those figures and Rodin's is that they are symbolic. 
There are no expression of inner feelings visualized by the mobility of muscles like we see in the walking man. If we look at his legs, we see the tension of muscles here around the knee capsule, for instance. The contrapposto of the Apollo Belvedere has been admired for its complexity, showing both a front and a side view of the figure as he's about to take a step forward in perfect balance. Assertive and self-conscious after just having shot a death-dealing arrow, defeating Kuchia. The image of mind over matter. Despite the range of forms used in the modeling of this body, the sculpture presented a simplification of forms without a prolifer proliferation of detail. Such control is a hallmark, hallmark of the classical style. And for the same reason, the art historian Winkelmann championed the statue as the epitome of Western civilization, admiring it for its, as he says, noble simplicity and quiet grandeur. The walking man, on the other hand, is proliferated, as we can tell, with details of muscular tension. Rilke, the perceptive poet, early on registers this new relationship to nature as he writes, quote, This daily attentiveness, alertness and readiness of the outturned senses, this thousandfold looking and always looking away from oneself, the being only I. End of quote. Like if the sculptor plunged himself into the abyss of nature, drinking in things with his eyes and infusing them with his imagination. Rodin himself put it uh, straightly, it is not only muscle represented, it is the life that animates it. Then maybe how about Bernini's statue of David slaying Goliath, a show off in dynamic movement. What sets those uh, figures apart from the walking man, beside their completeness of finish and parts, is that they have an identity. They are telling stories. Now, if we uh, move up to the upper body, the bony landmarks of the pelvic crest is visible at the front here and at the back. If we move this way, you will see the pelvic crest visible through the skin. The gluteus maximus is only indicated as a visible contour seen from a front side view. You will see that if you walk over here, from this stance here. But if we look from the back, they appear as one square box-like mass with a fairly rough a surface that almost looks like it had been made in plaster. It has the texture of plaster. Looking along the left side of the pelvis, where the leg is connected by the big trunk hander, we see a diagonally line and we can actually feel it with our hands, which is not allowed on most museums, but we'll do it today. So. If you don't trust me, come and feel it. Uh, and we can clearly feel that there is a very distinct uh, diagonally cut line here that has no relation to uh, the muscular tension of the figure that we see elsewhere. 
we can actually, uh, or along with this line, we find different mark makings on each side, indicating that the legs and the torso has been joined together. If we look at the front, si front left side, where the leg and the pelvis is connected, we see the same thing. The line of the groin does not meet with the surface of the sartorius, the muscle coming up here. The muscle has a flat plane where it meets the line of the groin, which is right here, and we can feel it again. It's almost like it was cut or sound, sanded down with a block. It looks like the parts were, as I call it, engineered together, rather than molded out of one piece of clay. If we look at the direction of the torso in relation to the legs, it's tilted slightly forward and left around a vertical axis and horizontally to the right. The latissimus dorsi on the left side is protruding backward and we will see that if we move to the, to the back side of the figure. And it's showing the torso in a block-like, block-like as I call it, side view this one. Almost like if it had been pushed from inside out. On the right side, the same muscle uh, is spiraling down, movement uh, spiraling, uh, moving, connecting to the abdomen in the front while the left shoulder and shoulder blade is facing backwards here the right side is pushed is pushed forward sideways and slightly downwards in relation to the torso it's almost like the missing arm here has been reaching out for something Or maybe they say the clay simply has been pushed forward with some kind of a force, slightly deforming the right side of the back here. One of the things that we notice is that it has deep cuts in the chest and it's gouged on the back. You see it's gouged here, in this part here, and if we go from the front we see some uh, indications of cuttings in the chest here and here. We also notice what appears to be seams on the other left side on the back. Sorry, we have to go back here. If we look at the torso on the upper left side, we see what seems to be a, uh, a cut. Almost like part of the shoulder was cut off or maybe broken off and put back together. Maybe Rodang wanted to see how much he could fragmentize, regret it and put it back on. Despite this, the marks doesn't look intentional. Another remarkable thing is, I would say they look rather accidental as a matter of fact. Another thing, remarkable thing is that uh, we don't see the shoulders from the front and please allow me to bring you back to the front. It's like the sculptures you have to move around them 
Only from the back view we see the shoulders. Chest and shoulders are only partially vis visible, leaving what looks like the texture of clay. If we look here, this is what we would recognize as the texture of clay, where this is definitely uh, visible as uh, muscles, okay? Nevertheless, we see it as a whole. Maybe our brains are filling out the empty spots, I don't know. If we step backwards and take a look at the entire statue, we see his missing head and arms. This, however, does not appear as a mutilation or deformation of the body because the amputations are following the contour of the torso. So if we please stay where you are positioned. If we look around here, we notice that the, as I call it, quotation mark amputations are not done through the uh, chest, uh, but along the, the uh, silhouette of the torso, okay? This is remarkable, taking consideration no one would survive such traumas in the real world. Uh, the weird thing is that even though we see a fragment, we accept him as being one, as being whole, as I call it. Now if we take an example as Cellini's uh, statue Perseus with the head of Medusa from 1545, the famous one that is positioned in Firenze, uh, here's another body that has been capitated. The body is, if you take a look again at the sculpture, uh, the body is laying on the pedestal like a sack of potatoes. The blood and the intestines are pouring out. The walking man doesn't have any of uh, that. Uh, he's all clay and armature inside. It's almost like Rodin is saying to us, look, this is not real. This is a sculpture. I am made, I'm talk, speaking for the walking man, I am made of armature and clay and stuff, things like that. Uh, kind of like a magician who is showing us the tricks of the trade. If we walk around the figure, and again, I have to uh, ask you to uh, walk, as the lovely thing about sculpture keeps you uh, on your toes, we realize another thing. From no angle does the figure look the same. And you might ask, well, doesn't that go for all sculptures? There is a front and a back to everything, of course. Uh, but for instance, in a Greek sculpture, the body is always complete in its original conception. And it is self-balanced, composed as we call it on a, on a canon, a set of beautiful measurements in which every part relates to one another and to the whole. The movement of the walking man changes between stability and instability. From the front left angle, we move over here, It looks like the walking man is about to fall from this angle where I'm standing here. It looks like he's falling. Now if we take, if we walk uh, this way and watch the 
uh, <clears throat> from the uh, left, uh, from the right back, he looks like he is a rocket almost, about to shoot into the sky. The parts are not fitted and the proportions are not beautiful in a classical sense. Our perception of the figure changes constantly between the idea of the form, meaning the muscles, and the idea of the material, meaning the texture of the clay. And because of that, we become partakers in uh, the process uh, of making the sculpture of Rodin's work. The statue, in other words, demands that we walk around it and, and engage in the creation. All right, now, why does the statue look as it does? The question raises the issue of why and how it was made. Now, let's take a look uh, at the story behind the statue. In 1907, Rodin had a large-scale Bronx cast made which he entitled The Walking Man. However, a smaller version of The Walking Man was already made in 1878, 29 years earlier. The smaller version of The Walking Man was not shown before his solar exhibition in Paris in 1900. Nobody really noticed it. Uh, it, was, uh, it was just standing there, a small battered torso without heads and arms among the rest of his figures. It was not until it was enlarged that it became famous. So don't say that size doesn't matter. <laughs> the walking man was based on fragments from Saint John the Baptist, uh, which he made a year earlier. Now the notion is that a sculptor does things the other way around, that he would make the walking man first and then develop uh, him into uh, a complete statue of Saint John. But Rodin reworked whole figures into fragments. We can only guess how he did it, but there's no doubt when we look at the undisguised marks of vigor vigorous process that his method wasn't the classical one. It would be interesting if we actually had St. John ne right next to us and compare the two statues. It would be, I would not be surprised if we discovered that in order to create the dynamic forward uh, striding pose of the walking man, the left leg of St. John had been extended and placed in a more diagonally stance. That might explain why the one leg is so much longer than the other. And it might be for you, maybe you say, not appear as much longer, but I think it's due to the way we see the sculpture. If we elevated him, it would be very clear. Or if you went on your knees and looked at the sculpture from the front and up, you would see that this leg here is substantially longer. I measured it myself and I think it's about four or five inches. Um, <clears throat> the walking man, so the foot, sorry, could be placed, uh, sorry, the, that might also explain why the one leg is so much longer, I said that. 
uh, and why he would choose to uh, to elevate the platform in order to have the left back foot placed firmly on the ground. Okay. We know that Rodin had, uh, had multiples of plastered maze of his clay figures with the intention to rework them into other works. We also know that Rodin would work from different models. Even though the peasant Pignatelli, I'm not sure if I pronounced it right, but he was, I believe, from Italy, from Abruzzi, stood model for St. John the Baptist, the walking man might have been developed over time using other models until it was finally cast in 1907. 29 years is a long time. Or it might simply have been standing there somewhere in the studio collecting dust while he was wondering whether it was unfinished or finished in its unfinishedness. He might have come to terms with it over the years and deciding to bring it to the show in 1900. In general, we know that he would make studies of hands, feet and legs and arms separately and combine them with torsos, bodies, in order to create the proliferated surfaces of the statues Rodin would have served the modules, models from hundreds of different angles. He would even have a ladder made so he could step up and look at the model from upside down. He called it objective observation. From every angle he would add new control lines that would interconnect and develop into larger masses. He would ask his models to move around or to take shorter poses in order to study the movement of the mus muscles. Either by drawing or working with clay and never leaving his eyes off the model. He would examine his statues in different lights, sometimes even candlelight. Another important aspect of Rodin's method was his use of different scale. His assistant, Henri Lebosset, enlarged Rodin's work, sometimes seven times the size of the original. You can imagine what happens if you do that with a leg that is somewhat shorter than the other in a smaller version. Or with a ridge created by the blade of a knife. Rodin was pleased with those uh, technical possibilities and the ability to endow the smaller work with a new monumental and expressive force. The enlargement was not merely a mechanical uh, reproduction, but one that raised new problems that required new sculptural decisions. Decisions which Le Bossé his assistant often had to make himself without the master who was busy working on other things. Rodin made extensively use of crafts and techniques, allowing him to explore the potential of one sculpture. And he didn't mind leaving his sketches to be executed in stone or bronze uh, by his assistants once the artistic process was finished. 
We can't talk, uh, talk about Rodin's method without mentioning his admiration uh, for ancient fragments. Rodin was not the first or only one who was inspired by those fragments. The Belvedere torso, as you might uh, well uh, know, was Michelangelo's favorite uh, sculpture. But Rodin was the first one to make the unfinished, finished statue. So, okay, so now to reach back to the beginning and our little experiment. How does the observations from the inside fit together with the outside observations and the story behind the statue? From the creation of St. John the Baptist to the walking man, there is a process of stripping down, so to speak. This is very important uh, to uh, really uh, emphasize and to understand. If we look at the preliminary drawings uh, Rodin made for St. John, he is carrying a cross, according to the legend. Rodin chose to remove the cross in the statue of St. John because it obstructed the view of the body. Without it, the gesture of the statue is endowed with the uncertainty and the hands, too, become expressive in themselves. Not grasping anything, but reaching out into the air and leaping forward as he is St. John. So the statue becomes difficult to read, quotation mark, read in a conventional way or traditional way because it lacks uh, the, this prop, this very essential prop, the, the cross. In the next step, he removes it from its religious context altogether by leaving out the most important feature of identity, head, including the arms, and even his name. St. John simply becomes a man. The art historian Albert, Albert Ilsen calls it the first biological man in the history of art. And I think that might be one of Rodin's greatest contributions that he placed sculpture and eye and body level in so many ways. So how has the walking man been, been influential? As a uh, short appendix, allow me to just mention a few examples. Most famous are of uh, Bocconi sculptures is unique forms of continuity in space from 1913. But he also made one that is called Spiral Expansion of Muscles in Action and Synthesis of Human Dynamism. Title and formal language reveals a marriage here between the vital, the vitalism of the walking man, as we might call it, and the machine. Dangerous as it would turn out to be uh, at the beginning of the century. Giacometti also uh, made a walking man in 1961. As we know, his man is isolated on a large base, tall and attenuated. But while Giacometti's is optical, 
like a shadow, Rodin is tangible. We can touch him, we can feel him. Rodin said that his drawings were the key to his sculptures, and many of them are straightforward erotic, especially the drawings from the last uh, time of his life, I should say. Giacometti, man, has been read as the embodiment of modern life devoid of meaning. I don't know if that is true, but I can say that it is 100% not true about Rodin's uh, The Walking Man. We just have to look at his gates of hell to see that it's not. The two sculptures are interesting to uh, sculptures are interesting to compare for other reasons as well. They are as far apart as it gets. To quote Giacometti, establishing yourself, furnishing a house, building up a comfortable existence and having that menace hanging over your head all the time. No, I prefer to live in hotels, cafes, just passing through. With his studio and garden containing waste numbers of sculptures and fragments, Rodin's home in Meudon, on the other hand, was a large estate. He was a collector of objects and artifacts, and he employed an entourage of craftsmen and assistants. At the turn of the 20th century, Science has provided us with new and amazing images of the biological man, as Elsen called him. German artist Thomas Schütte made a series of statues named Geister, or as they would be called in English, spirits. Those statues are without gender and identity. They are fluid and shiny, and they have an otherworldly appearance. So where can we find the walking man in the new millennium? In a world of Twitters and iClouds. And what does he look like? With reference to walking men worldwide, a site-specific installation in downtown Manhattan from 2010, consisting of a series of photographic collage of pedestrian traffic icons assembled from around the world and presented at human scale, Allow me to give the final word to the artist Maya Bakai, and I quote from her artist statement. Numerous traffic light characters represent the modern walking men. Standardized yet diverse, they commonly show us the correct and safe way of travel. The walking men uh, worldwide project explores various representations of the universally rendered man and attempts to examine its inherent, inherent conundrum. Why is it that while we all consider these icons to be typologically identical, they appear to add such a unique character to our urban identity? These two-dimensional men, omitted of all idiosyncratic detail, repeatedly reveal themselves in multiple forms on traffic lights and street signs on every corner, as this photographic collage unveils a rich and fascinating world within the confines of a coherent multilingual graphic vocabulary. Thank you. And uh, 
If you have any questions, I would like to answer them. Uh, and the word is yours. <laughs> Thank you. Does anyone have any questions? I'll start off with a question. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, we'll get right to you. Um, we received a question earlier today yeah. from Twitter yeah. asking how Rodin's statue was originally received in 1900. Because it was so un unusual. Yeah. Yes, uh, how was Rodin's uh, sculptures, mm -hmm. this, The Walking Man, yes. uh, received, received in, when it was uh, showed uh, in 1900? Correct. Correct. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, he was hardly noticed. The Walking Man was standing somewhere among a large number of very uh, big statues at uh, Rodin's uh, solar show in Paris and he didn't uh, I, I guess people uh, saw him as they just noticed this little battered uh, figure without heads and arms it was really not until it was enlarged in 1907 that uh, it became famous but to having said that his work was controversial among his contemporaries, among, especially among the critics, uh, and uh, for the, some of the reasons that I mentioned was that they had a hard time uh, reading The Walking Man because he was lacking the most prominent features of identity, the head, uh, the name of St. John, or any name for, matter, for that matter, and the cross. So you have to understand that at this point, uh, sculptures were very much like uh, the one we see in front of the Capitol Hill, Olusu mm -hmm. says grand, that they told a story and they had all the features that you need to, uh, uh, to understand uh, the meaning and they would uh, answer questions rather than uh, uh, raising them. Mm -hmm. So it was very controversial and he was defended uh, by his contemporary artists mm -hmm who recognized that here was uh, something very uh, important. Rilke was one of the few, uh, one of the uh, critics who, uh, he was a poet who, who, who wrote about Rodin and who, who understood uh, the importance of this work. And he's probably one of the first who uh, sits down to write it down. He was, as I mentioned, his secretary for many years, mm -hmm. few years and uh, worked for him and he was in love with Rodin and, and his work and uh, that's a different story but a very interesting one. Yeah. Thank you. So you had a question? Yes, how big was the original statue before it was enlarged? Yes. Uh, as I've been reading up on the subject here, uh, I myself was a little confused whether he was 86 centimeters, that's uh, in English uh, or in American, it's 2 feet 10 inches, because there is a smaller version uh, that has those dimensions. But as I've been reading on it, uh, I refer to the little battered torso, which uh, was the thing that people saw on his 1900 show. And I think it might be that he had a smaller version that uh, was the model he used for St. John the Baptist. 
And it might not have been larger than, bigger than, than this, maybe a feet tall. But I, I will not uh, put my head on the block. Uh, but there is a definitely a, a scale enlargement here that is very uh, severe or uh, big. And it does, and, and Rodang, uh, I believe, as far as I remember, again, I'm not 100% sure, but I think the Burgers of Calais was the last sculpture that he himself enlarged. Henry Le Bousset, who was his assistant, uh, who did those enlargements, he would work from him, and he would enlarge all his uh, statues, or reduce them sometimes. And, and Rodin, I believe, was very fond of that because, it, as I said, it, it gave his sculptures new uh, expressive force when they saw them in a different scale. And as we all know, sculptures uh, are the closest probably art form to the body and they have to be experienced with the body as well as with the mind. And for the same reason, it, it, may, it makes a tremendous uh, difference how you relate to the figure, whether it's a small one uh, that you can grasp in your hand, or if you really have to move around it uh, and and go far away to see it, and that's what I also try to to say that it, this, the statue of the walking man demands that you walk around it because you cannot just see it from one specific side and understand the rest because it's not uh, it's not classical. It is not self-balanced. It it changes between stability, instability and between these areas where you see uh, clay and figure and I mean there's I have I didn't mention that but there's an armature sticking out here in the heel uh, that he left and there is a wooden block in his left side of his pelvis that uh, derives from the armature inside and you would think that in a classical way you would say well I'm probably going to finish that up before I enlarge it but Rodin liked that rough physicality of the sculptures and also I think the notion that you could see that they were they were not illusion they were not just pure illusion they, they were not they were made of stuff you know they were made of things they were made of rocks and clay so I've, uh, yeah. I've heard recently on NPR a segment about the Smithsonian has a, a tech person who is scanning uh, objects and uh, the object that they talked about was a gunboat, I think, in American History Museum, and putting them in a computer. 3D scanning. Yeah, 3D scanning, putting it in a computer, and then you can take this and revolve it, rotate yeah. it all you want. I imagine you could increase or decrease the scale. So, and well, you're talking about this uh, being scaled up. Yeah. So I'm wondering how this new technology will affect the sculptor and the appreciation of the sculpture. I think it's no different than what Rodin uh, had Le Pousset made in, uh, with the Mocking Man. Le Pousset, he did it. He was a, now you just have a machine doing it. Having said that, there are certain, uh, there, are, there are differences because Le Pousset, as I mentioned, sometimes would scale the figure to an extent where he would have to be creative. He would not just have to he could not longer depend on copying the smaller figure because there was such the one inch became maybe seven inches wide that area. So he would actually have to uh, come up with creative solutions. And Rodin would say to him, "Look at the large mass. Don't look at the detail. The machine looks at the detail and 
and scales it up, but it doesn't make uh, a deliberate uh, artistic decision. But I think it's it's a it's great uh, device, and I'm sure Rodin, if he had had that uh, that uh, technology, he would have used it, and he would have been happy about it because he loved, I think, all the processes that went into making sculpture, and he had lots of craftspeople and assistants working for him doing so. There's an, the sculpture I mentioned, Thomas Schütte, who made the Geister, or the spirits, he makes use of that machine that you're talking about. I heard him talk about the, the machine and the sculptures he made, and he said, I use it, I, however, I don't, I'm not interested in the technology behind the statue. I don't want the technology to be visible in the large piece, which is usually the case when you're large, a little sculpture, you have these uh, profiling, I believe, not always, Jim might argue with me that because you more know, about, know more about it. Artifacts. Artif yeah. But there. But he. Uh, so. Uh, it's. I don't think it's any different except there is there is a certain decision making that the machine does now. What I think is 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 apparent in our time is that we often think that the machines will solve the artistic problem, or we can leave it to the machines that they will make magnificent things, but they're just tools. And I say that for, for the reason that I see in a lot of art schools, you know, they have huge departments where they have computers and the sculpture department is barely there. You know, maybe there's a, uh, there, is, there, there aren't even a little sculpture stand or anything, you know, it's, it's so humble. Whereas uh, the, the technology is like, you know, we, we don't mind spending lots of money on that. But it all starts uh, in here, inside the, the brain or in the body. And uh, the machine is just a, an extension of your vision. Any other questions? So this one, this was in fact enlarged. I mean, this is done by his assistant? Yes. This, this? Yes, a lot of his sculptures, except for I think the, the Burgers of Calais, are made by his assistant. And Rodin would not interfere, as far as I, when I read up on this subject, he was not interfering with Le Bossier's work. And it's something that has not been written a lot about because, you know, we always, we, we, uh, we want to see the, the, the artist, you know, and, and the assistant is of less importance, he just scales it up. But it's not just a mechanical reproduction, because you can just see this little area here, the gouged out thing on the back, this small here. How do you scale that up to seven times so it has the size of your fist? There's a lot of decisions that goes into there, but of course the whole idea of stripping down St. John the Baptist and making the forward thrust and all these things are, are the vision of Rodin. But how it translates is a different thing in this size. Thank you very much, it's a wonderful talk.